Welcome to episode seven of the report. Today is August 31st, and we're going to be discussing a plethora of things on tonight's edition of the report. We're starting off with the discussion of our changes to our race ratings, which pertains to our presidential, gubernatorial, senatorial, and house ratings. After that, we'll be discussing uh, the remainder of our ratings with some maps. We have maps tonight, and we have Eric Cunningham, who's going to be coming on like he always does for our ratings, uh, to discuss what he thinks is going on with these races, how the ratings are going to uh, change potentially over the next few weeks, uh, and what it means for November. So we're going to be having that segment. We're also going to be having possibly, we don't know yet if it's going to be a debate or a discussion. We're hoping we can get you your debate time, but we're debating over uh, whether or not violence right now in the cities can be effectively connected to the Democrats to damage Joe Biden's campaign. And basically, even though Joe Biden's denounced the violence repeatedly in tweets, uh, can Trump still effectively use it as a campaign message to damage Biden is effectively uh, what we'll be debating tonight. And we have one person who's confirmed to be debating that, and that's Jared Stone. Uh, so we have that. And we're also going to be talking about polling in our middle segment for this presidential race, looking at uh, how polling has evolved over the course of the race and making some predictions for polling going forward uh, into November. Will the race tighten? Will it broaden back out? Uh, are the trends we're seeing now going to uh, pertain to the race as it goes forward or not. So we're going to be looking at that. But first, I'd like to uh, welcome our guest. We always bring on for our ratings discussions, Eric Cunningham, the uh, lead editor and founder of Elections Daily. So welcome, Eric. Uh, happy to have you on here on tonight's episode of The Report. Yep, happy to be here. Yeah, so why don't we start off with what we typically do with the uh, presidential ratings. So we'll talk about our changes to the presidential ratings. Uh, for the viewers, uh, there were a few changes to our presidential ratings right now, and we actually have a pretty competitive map. Uh, mm -hmm. Not a particularly amount, large amount of electoral votes safe for any party. But uh, we had uh, the Michigan change, which moved back to leans Democratic. We initially had it as likely Democratic. And this is a state that Trump won in 2016, uh, but he has been performing rather poorly in polls there, and he's stopped campaigning effectively when it comes to running ads there. Uh, if you look at recent data, He's actually spent more time targeting in terms of media and ads the state of Minnesota than he has in Michigan. At least that's what it appears, mm -hmm. which uh, is why our ratings tend to at least some to some extent correspond with 538's model, which actually has Minnesota as a state that's more likely to go to Trump, even though Biden's still favored than a state like Michigan is. But Eric, if you just want to discuss the change you made to your presidential ratings and uh, why you made the change and what it means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so definitely. So the polls have definitely narrowed to a degree in Michigan to a point where I can't really say it's where we can't really say with confidence that it's likely Democratic. Uh, out of all the states we have in the leans column right now, say for maybe New Hampshire, this would be the furthest one at the moment um, in terms of, you know, targets for, for Donald Trump. But his polling is improving there. Uh, both sides seem to be taking it seriously at this point. Uh, there's been Republican internals there that seem to be really de decent, and then Democrats, whether it's a turnout play or not, are insisting the races are also close there. Um, a lot of them still kind of have nightmares from the 2016 election, where infamously uh, he targeted the state heavily in the last month, the last week of the election or so, and it paid off. Um, so this is more of an abundance of caution move. Obviously, if the polls continue to, to go one way or the other, uh, we'll be shifting them. But with states like New Hampshire and and a Minnesota in here, um, it's a. I think it's a pretty reasonable change to shift this, uh, right? Which leaves only one state in our likely column, which is Nevada, and this is primarily because there's been really a lack of polling in the state. Uh, it's a state that Democrats are carried favored to win, obviously, but we're there's not enough polling to, to say whether or not it's in the same league as those uh, lean states at the moment, of which there are a good number. There's a uh, 
there's four states we have listed as leans Democratic right now, totaling 60 electoral votes. So a good amount of uh, a good amount of votes are still in that column. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing to note about our presidential ratings before we move on to our uh, congressional ratings, I mean, it was noted on our page by uh, Kraz. Uh, he talked about uh, some might question why we have states like Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina as uh, toss-ups. Well, many Rust Belt states are leans Democrat. He said it has to do with uh, a phenomenon we're starting to see where Democratic fortunes are declining rapidly in many of the elastic working class Midwestern states. Uh, well, making gains in some of these suburban sunbelt states. And generally, uh, most political analysts and pundits of any degree will agree that long term, the presidential coalitions appear to be shifting in a way that uh, you'll have those more diverse sunbelt states match with the Democratic Party's current coalition, whereas these uh, traditionally Democratic bastions in the uh, Rust Belt are continuing to trend towards the Republicans. Now, that doesn't mean they're not winnable for Democrats. Joe Biden is favored to win many of these mm-hmm. states, but in terms of a long-term trend, what do you think our ratings represent there? Um, so at the moment, I think what it's telling is that those states that were in the uh, what you'd call the blue wall, uh, they're not snapping back purely into the Biden column like you would expect with a massive lead at the moment. They're, they're polling pretty well, but they're polling pretty close to his national vote total, whereas states like Texas and Georgia and, and even North Carolina, to a degree, are polling far behind where Biden is polling nationally, right? So... That's a big difference here is, you know, at the moment, I would say if, if, you know, if this were to be a five point Biden win, I don't think states like Texas or Georgia or maybe even North Carolina flip. Um, but states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan probably hold on. Um, that's just kind of the indicate is that the, those Sunbelt states are shifting, but they're not doing it rocket speed like some of these Midwestern states were where you saw. Um, you know, votes that are, are double-digit swings. The only state that's really seeming to to kind of snap back to where it was uh, is Maine. Maine was a competitive state in 2016. Kind of surprisingly, it was within uh, three percentage points. And neither state is seriously target. Neither party is seriously targeting the entire state this cycle. Republicans are obviously hoping to salvage the congressional district there, um, but we have that listed as a toss-up, similar like the one in in Nebraska. So even that's not a sure bet. That was already a one that was. The, that's the closest thing you would you would think of to like a to a, a toss-up state, right? It voted very similarly to to states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, in terms of proportional to the vote, and then swung towards Trump. Um, that's that's one where it has been a little bit more um, of a of a factor. But even then, it's not enough to put it, you know, back into the Democratic column at this point, which is uh, that that's just kind of the phenomenon we're looking at here, right? And obviously, we have states in the Republican column that are likely. We have a lot of likely Republican states. We have, you know, Utah, Montana, Kansas, uh, Missouri, and South Carolina. We've talked about moving Indiana at some point if the if the polling in the fifth congressional district continues to be abysmal for Republicans. Um, so it's not like we're, you know, we're, we have some sort of inherent bias here. Just the matter of fact at the moment is, is states like Texas and Georgia seem like they're competitive right now, um, but more winnable than a state like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is certainly very interesting when we're looking at that factor. But uh, could you briefly as well explain the uh, changes to our Senate ratings and gubernatorial ratings before we move on to House ratings? Yeah. So we made one change in the Senate ratings, and it's a change we talked about. Um, this is more on the the Kraz and Adam Trencher are the two that really handle these ratings. But, but we obviously we discuss all these internally to you know get an idea. And it was moving Minnesota. So we had the Minnesota Senate election at Safe Democratic, and we moved it to Likely. 
So um, basically what that means is that we didn't think that we thought that Tina Smith would substantially outrun Biden. Obviously, we had Minnesota for a long time, that likely Democratic. Um, but polling has come out and shown a fairly close race, even though Jason Lewis isn't the ideal candidate. He has won a competitive district in a national election before. Um, there's various reasons we moved this, but basically it, it was, again, the polls are showing it closer than we than we expected. And it's at least a state that you could feasibly imagine Republicans winning in some sort of surprise scenario. It's yeah, not one that Democrats are completely locked into. Like, uh, yeah, you know, like it's, uh, still a, it's still a favorite. Mm-hmm. Smith is still a favorite. And again, it's highly yeah. likely that Smith outruns Biden. Um, mm-hmm. Trump is likely going to perform better than Jason Lewis, because even though Jason Lewis is a uh, district, took in quite a few of the suburbs in that second district there. Mm-hmm. He's definitely not someone that would be called popular in the suburbs. I mean, he only barely yeah. won in what was considered mm-hmm. an upset in 2016. And then he lost his rematch re-election to Angie Craig. He's definitely Correct. a more caustic uh, conservative, if you look at it that way, not someone who necessarily fits the bill of a more moderate suburban Republican that mm-hmm. you see in the Main Street Coalition, uh, for example. But but yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And now he's running statewide. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's also important to note that, that Housley when she ran against Smith in the last election, still lost by 10 or 11 points. So Minnesota, yeah. even though it was close in the 2016 special election, still has a fairly uh, predominant lean towards the Democrats. Yeah, that was similar Which to how it voted in, in 2014. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and um, I mean, when you have someone like Norm Coleman, who was the last Republican senator from the state, uh, he lost by just a hair, only 300 votes mm-hmm. or so back in 2008 to Al Franken. But uh, I mean, the, you, you had, you've had some close gubernatorial contests like 2014, uh, when Mark Dayton was reelected, but, but still, I mean, it's worth, it's worth looking at, um, you know, just the fact that Minnesota, even though it's trending towards the Republicans had a close presidential race, um, in 2016, and you have three districts there that are trending towards the Republicans, uh, mm-hmm. two of them that were held by Democrats, the eight and the first flipped and the seventh, which we're going to talk about later tonight. Uh, we also expect to flip now, but uh, you also at the same time have districts like the second and the third, traditionally Republican, that have been moving towards Democrats. And that's at least, uh, unless Jared debunks it in our later thing tonight, at least positive signs for Democrats in suburbs. But we're going to have a debate on that later tonight. So, yeah. uh, And one other thing I wanted to mention with those Senate ratings is that at the moment we have it, uh, if, if the ratings go exactly like we say they will, um, you'd have 49 Democrats, 48 Republicans, and three toss-up races. Obviously, in the event of a Biden presidency, you only need 50 votes because the vice president breaks ties. But if there's any indication historically, a 50-vote majority with the vice president is uh, is tenuous, to say the least. Um, so obviously, they would, either party would prefer to get to 51 rather than to 50. And it's within reach for either because those three races are, mm-hmm. at the moment, um, they're Iowa, they're Maine, and, uh, and uh, Montana um, would be those three races. Yeah, and real quick, we're going to move on to our House races today. Uh, I'm in charge of the House ratings and elections daily, and we actually we actually have um, three House ratings changes today, one in Michigan, one in Minnesota, and uh, another in New Mexico. Two of the changes are moving towards the Democrats, one is moving towards the Republicans. And we're going to focus a lot tonight on Minnesota's 7th District, which we're moving towards the Republicans, uh, not only because Colin Peterson, the incumbent Democrat, is fairly prominent, but also because this is the first Democratic held seat that's been moved into the lean R column. We have um, we have now four open seats in the in Democratic columns for the Republicans. Uh, Georgia seventh is in the lean Democratic column. Texas twenty three, another open seat, is in the likely Democratic column, 
And uh, the two open North Carolina seats are in the safe Democratic column because they've been redrawn in uh, another uh, set of mid-decade redistricting to be more Democratic. But this is notable because this is not only the first incumbent to be rated to, to lose, uh, but the first Democratic incumbent to be rated to lose as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so the other vulnerable incumbents are still in the toss-up category at this point or in the lean category for their respective party. Mm -hmm. um, so the race this time is between Colin Peterson, who has um, represented the seat in Congress since 1991. He was elected in 1990 following a string of, of uh, close losses in the 80s there uh, before he won the seat. And uh, he had some close races early in his career. Then he really established himself and managed to win fairly easily for a long time. He didn't have another, you know, somewhat competitive race until 20, uh, 2014. And he didn't even have a close race really until 2016. So there was a long gap between uh, his race in 92, which was pretty close, and uh, his race in, uh, in say, 2016 or 2018, which was so far the closest in, in decades for Peterson. And he's being challenged by arguably the best candidate he's ever been challenged by, Michelle Fishbach, who a uh, former, uh, former Minnesota state senator and lieutenant governor of the state. Fishbach is actually a stronger fundraiser than Peterson. Um, and it is true that Peterson does have the name recognition that you want to uh, win a district that Clinton only got 30% in as a Democrat. And it's worked effectively, even though his margins have been coming down. But some are saying that uh, the fact that he lost to, uh, or sorry, that he beat Dave Hughes by a smaller margin in 2018 than he did in 2016 uh, is a bad sign for him this time because Fishbach is widely considered by, by Republicans to be a much better candidate than someone like Dave Hughes. Uh, and the fact that Trump is expected to win this district by either the same amount or slightly less than he did last time uh, should be enough to to potentially put, put the end to Peterson's career. And he is the chair of the House Agricultural Committee. And he is genuinely considered one of the most vulnerable Democrats right now, and definitely the most vote, the most senior vulnerable Democrat at the moment. So it, it's definitely going to be a very interesting race. Uh, just to show you Peterson's uh, history of crossover appeal, and we're going to see crossover appeal this time. Uh, if Peterson loses, it'll likely be by a very narrow amount to Fishbach. Uh, we do not expect Fishbach right now, even though we now consider her a favorite to win by a large amount. Uh, but uh, Trump will significantly outrun Fishbach, or if you want to reverse uh, that analogy, Biden will significantly underperform Peterson just as Clinton did. But here is a map right here that I made earlier today of Minnesota 7, comparing the 2018 uh, House results in the 7th, where Peterson had a, for, for a Colin Peterson race, a fairly close race against Dave Hughes. Uh, you can see there are tons, tons of crossover appeals. Still a close race. Still around the same margin as 2016, which is kind of ominous considering it was a big blue wave in 2018. And Minnesota's other two seats, Districts 1 and 8, which were open seats, flipped. Uh, and obviously, Trump won this district by a commanding margin. So that's another aspect of it. But uh, this was a tough decision because Peterson is still a formidable incumbent. He's someone who we consider a strong incumbent, but it's going to be his toughest race this year. And uh, even though you can expect to see a lot of this crossover appeal that you saw between 2016 and 2018, or even 2016 and 2016, uh, it's certainly going to be a, a very, very interesting election when we look at it that way. And uh, Eric, I don't know if you have anything you want to say about mm -hmm. this election in particular, but it's going to be, uh, it's definitely one of, in my opinion, the most interesting house races this cycle, just given the fact that Peterson is such a prominent member of the Democratic caucus and also so very vulnerable. I mean, he's one of the last people to represent a district that leans so far to the opposite of his political party.
Yeah, and he's also kind of the last of his kind in terms of socially conservative Democrats. Uh, on specifically, he's pro-life. Um, has specific. I mean, obviously, that's part of representing a district that's so Republican. Even I mean, it's more Republican than it used to be. This is only a, a Romney plus nine seat, and it turned into a Trump plus thirty seat. So obviously, there's been a little bit of a transformation there recently. But um, it's not a, him being the chair of the Agriculture Committee. I mean, that's a pretty major decline. The people next up in seniority in that committee aren't in rural districts. He's basically the last it's link the Democratic Party has the there. Only one who's in a somewhat rural district. Yeah, but like he, you know, out of those that are left, I mean, yeah, Costa. Um, obviously, although his seat represents more Fresno specifically, and that may be redrawn in the next cycle, given how unusual it looks at the moment. Um, but like David Scott, Marsha Fudge, Jim McGovern. Um, these people don't represent the sort of district that historically runs the agriculture committee. So he's really his last tie to that sort of Midwestern um, thing there. I mean, obviously, you know, Democrats could decide to to alter things and to you know, modify their committee placements, but generally seniority rules. So this would be a pretty big decline. I mean, a pretty big um, defeat for Democrats because obviously the lost committee chairs left and right this cycle um, in primaries. Um, on the on the Democratic side, losing one in the general as well like this would probably not be a great thing, I wouldn't think. Um, and obviously, Fishbach is a really good candidate. She's um, known. She's out, out fundraising him. She has a lot of tangible advantages. And just as a whole, um, you know, it seems to be a pretty good situation for, for her so far. Obviously, the, the election uh, is still yet to come and things may change, but um, it's just a really difficult situation for him to get out of. I mean, yeah, it does appear, it does appear as time um, uh, might be up. And Fishbach has been a competitive fundraiser, but it's also important to note that, just to clarify, uh, Fishbach has technically outraised Peterson, but according to the late, but Peterson has more cash on hand. Yeah, uh, at the moment. So mm -hmm. I just want to clarify that to our viewers that even though they're competitive in total receipts, uh, Fishbach has spent a lot more money on advertising so far, attacking Peterson which is part of the reason why Peterson has more cash on hand. So just don't be confused about that. If you go on the yeah. FEC website, it's, it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing to look at, but obviously, you know, defining him and trying to position him that he's not the moderate Democrat. He asserts himself to be kind of the last no, and, and part even, of the blue dogs. Um, and, and even with, I mean, yeah, he really is in a way, a remnant of the old blue dog caucus, because traditionally the blue dogs were rural conservative Democrats in districts like these in the South and the Rust mm -hmm. Belt and North, et cetera. Uh, now the blue dogs are really becoming more of the suburban moderate uh, mm -hmm. party. Kind the of Stephanie thing. Murphy, the Stephanie I mean, Murphy, you have to look at it. conservative, yeah. socially liberal as opposed to socially yeah. conservative, fiscally liberal. Yeah. And you see some of this, uh, you see some of this, uh, all you, uh, Try not to sneeze. You see some of this on. Uh, I lost my thought. I was trying not <laughs> to sneeze, but because uh, you can't do that anymore with coronavirus. So, um, ah. what I was trying to say was yes, the, Peterson is definitely a remnant of more what the Blue Dogs were rather than what they are now. Because if you look at the Blue Dog Caucus now, again, you've got many more people that would be in suburban districts. Mm hmm. And not always suburban, but but districts that, that even if they have rural areas and like Brindisi's district has a lot of rural areas in it, uh, but at the same time it does have suburbs in it as well. You know, places yeah. around Binghamton and uh, to the southeast of Syracuse as well. Yeah, yeah, and I like our comment from Jackson in the comments that Blue Dog doesn't uh, 
mean what it means anymore because someone like stephanie murphy i would agree is honestly closer to like the new democrats caucus because the modern definition of conservative democrat is not what it was back in the 90s or early 2000s she's more i mean obviously the new democrat caucus has basically just become kind of what the republican study committee is which is just generic democrat caucus um where it used to actually be you know it actually stood for fiscally moderate conservative socially liberal obviously people like stephanie murphy are trying to push harder for the chamber of commerce endorsements and things like that but um, if he goes down, that's really the line. I mean, there's not anyone. Maybe Kurt Schrader maybe would be like kind of those last links, but Jim Costa. But there's really not a whole lot of those types left. They all got routed in, in 2010, 2012, 2014. Um, so this would kind of be a historic moment if Republicans managed to flip the seat. Mm-hmm. It, it would be. It would be a historic moment. It would be a change if you look at it that way. I mean, I mean, if Peterson loses uh, – you know, the House is going to be without someone who, for better or for worse, has been there for a long time and become quite an influential figure. And when Peterson started running for Congress back in the 80s, he had quite a string of losses back then before he actually won the seat. And frankly, people didn't really think he would amount to anything. And now he's amounted to become one of the most predominant Democrats. And uh, even though this was more common before the 2010 midterms, where you used to have Democrats representing seats that voted for McCain by strong margins, you know, mm-hmm. Peterson's really the last example. And I'm not talking about a Democrat representing a Trump plus five or Trump plus 10 seat. I'm talking about a Democrat representing Trump a seat 30. Trump won by 30 <laughs> points. That's something you don't see anymore. There are no more people yeah. like Rick Boucher, Ike Skelton, Gene Taylor. Those people, you don't, they were, most of them were wiped out back in 2010. Um, and the few that held on lost re-election in 2014. So mm-hmm. it's definitely going to be really interesting to see because if Peterson can hold on now, it's almost certain he retires in 2022 because his seat's going to be broken up and redistricting. Uh, and we'll probably cover this on redistrict, redistricting radar because Minnesota's likely to lose the seat. But, but again, just to see the map, this is his traditional crossover appeal. Even if you don't know anything about politics, you should be able to tell that this man is pretty, pretty talented, at least historically, of getting crossover support. But for the reasons we've mentioned before, uh, especially Fishbuck being a uh, competitive fundraiser, Fishbuck being a better candidate overall than uh, someone like Dave Hughes, um, Mm -hmm. and the fact that Peterson's margin technically went down between 2018 and 2016, even though 2018 was a much better year than 2016, uh, and we've seen maps of this all the time. How in the 2014 red wave, you had uh, the eighth district of Minnesota and the eighth and the eighth district voting for the governorship, and that's the other district of Minnesota uh, in the Iron Range, and they voted Democratic in the red wave in 2014. But then they both flipped in 2018 in a blue wave. So that just shows you trend, basically. Mm-hmm. And Dave Hughes was not a good candidate. Um, no, like, he was. He not wasn't supported him. nationally. He was basically kind of left for dead. Um, and kind of, uh, so, I mean. Uh, the fact that Dude, Republicans shows are seriously contesting at this time is a big deal. And and that's why we've moved it to lean Republican. And uh, there are a few more seats that we could see potentially moving to lean Republican eventually, mm-hmm. particularly uh, Brindisi's seat, uh, the 5th District. Maybe at the moment I really see South Carolina one is staying as a toss-up, but it is possible that Mace uh, takes that seat. Uh, and some seats we might move to lean Democratic. You know, Candace Valenzuela's race in the open seat in Texas 24 could end up as lean Dem as well. But again, overall, if you look at our House ratings, these are our House ratings right now, uh, if you can see that. Uh, these are the changes we made today. We're going to get to the other two changes shortly. Uh, we moved Michigan 6 from likely R to lean R. John Hoadley's challenging Fred Upton there. And it's generally considered to be a close race, despite the scandal that came out earlier uh, about John Hoadley supposedly blogging about sex and drugs while he was uh, mm-hmm. younger. 
And uh, we also have a race we're going to explain with a map in New Mexico, too, where we move Torres' small seat uh, from toss-up to lean Democrat. That's a Trump plus 10 seat, but it's going to be interesting to see how Biden does now without the Gary Johnson variable, because you still had a lot of third-party support uh, in New Mexico, too, to the same degree that you had third-party support uh, mm-hmm. in a seat like Utah 4. So you don't really know. Will Biden carry it? Uh, we'll see. Um, and uh, looking at this, this is our total composition of the House right now. We have 14 toss-ups, uh, but at the moment, Democrats are still heavily favored to hold their House majority. So it's looking mm-hmm. like a year without a particularly large amount of change for uh, incumbents. In yeah, terms, even of if Republicans win every single one of their toss-ups, those toss-ups they'd still be have being a pretty solid minority there. Yeah. So real quick, we're going to look at uh, our map in New Mexico. So. This is New Mexico, too, in 2018. Uh, Torres Small managed to narrowly flip this, the open seat of Republican Steve Pierce, who retired to run for governor that year. It was an incredibly close race. It was very, very close against Terrell, but it's actually a rematch this time. Uh, and we're going to discuss it. Um, we're going to discuss it because we have um, this as lean Democratic now instead of a toss up. So uh, it was one of the closest races in 2018. Harrell was actually up on election night. And, uh, Small narrowly took the lead overall. So, uh, Eric, do you want to say anything about this seat real quick? Yeah, so uh, Yvette Harrell is honestly a pretty bad candidate. Obviously, having someone who lost last time um, running again is not great, but Republicans had a candidate they liked in Claire Chase, who, was, uh, who would probably be better positioned in the, in the general, but... Um, you know, Torres Small has a has a pretty decent base. It is New Mexico, so there's a lot of voters who are willing to split tickets. It's a actually it's a majority Hispanic seat if you look at the voter composition. So it's a very diverse region, like a lot of New Mexico in general. Um, and it's been known to split tickets before. It split tickets in 2008, obviously uh, in 20 you know 2018. Um, so you know, obviously it's pretty it's a it's, yeah. a, it's a good – It's Democrats got their chosen opponent here basically, and Republicans really are going to have a hard time um, with her because she's just honestly not a very good candidate. Yeah, and the district used to be represented by a Democrat named Harry T, who held it for one term from 2008 uh, to the lost mm-hmm. re-election in 2010 to Steve Pierce. But uh, Harry T was a different type of Democrat from uh, Social Torres yeah. Small for sure. Yeah, he – I mean there's – He was the he really actually, Democrat. Yeah. He was one of the last uh, Democrats – uh, without a college mm-hmm. degree in Congress, he was fairly conservative, and he he lost re-election by ten points to Steve Pierce. But he had that one victory in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, I mean, obviously the old type of Democrat, whereas uh, Torres Small is is definitely a, a different sort of candidate. But again, it's New Mexico does like to split tickets. It wouldn't be a shock if if Harrell wins here, but given her track record, it's just. Uh, that it's going to be, it's harder to see that scenario, especially given Republicans aren't actually contesting New Mexico like they were touting for so long at this point. Yeah. And if we look at the seat, I mean, Harrell's been a controversial as a candidate. And uh, many people are arguing, as we are, that Torres Small is a strong incumbent, a strong fundraiser, someone who should be able to win this time. We have it at Lean Democratic. Uh, there are probably going to be some Trump small voters. I mean, that's something we can guess uh, if we look at this election. I mean, we don't know for sure how many, but it's something that will, will that will play a factor. It'll, it'll be a role in this election. Uh, mm-hmm. But small is favored to win re-election in this rematch. And there were some scandals in the primary when Harrell was against uh, Chase in the primary there about how devoted she actually was to Trump. Now, uh, that may work in a Republican primary, and uh, those attacks 
will probably not work to the same degree uh, in a general election, especially in a competitive seat like this. Uh, but it is very, very interesting to look at uh, Torres Small as kind of that new kind of Democrat from the Southwest. And it'll be interesting to see how the seat votes on the presidential level with an absence of major third party votes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she honestly, she also had some campaign finance problems in 2018. Um, I mean, it was, there's a lot of reasons why she's not an ideal candidate just overall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we finished up our rating sections, but I, I believe Eric's going to stay on for the uh, section about polling, which we're going to talk about until it looks like our discussion. Uh, we're not, I don't know if we're going to be able to do a debate time this week because we haven't found someone to debate against Jared. So we might just have Jared on and have a discussion with him. Uh, but before that, we're going to be talking about polling. And I have 538 up to look at the latest polling mm -hmm. in the presidential race. Uh, and I'm basically going to get Eric's opinion for the next 15 minutes on whether or not he thinks the race is tightening and uh, whether he thinks um, that the polls over the next month will follow the uh, last few polls that have been much closer than polls from last month, for example, or whether he thinks uh, Biden will be managed to rebuild his lead a little bit. So uh, what do you think recently about the recent polls you've seen, Eric? Uh, there doesn't seem to have been a huge convention bump of anything, but also a lot of these polls aren't really gold standard. Um, they're places like Emerson or Trafalgar. Um, just like honestly, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't draw too much from the polls that are coming up right now. I really want to see what places like um, what some more reliable firms are showing, um, basically. Because last time there was actually a substantial bump uh, during the RNC. Trump went from losing, you know, from behind uh, by one point to Hillary to being ahead by four. If you look at some of the polling, I think it was the morning consult poll um, after the convention. So there was a bump. Whereas this time, if you look at what's been going on in the polling right now, it doesn't seem like there's a substantial bump like that. If there is, it's, it's making a, a fairly sizable deficit smaller. Um, I think the morning consult showed that Biden's favorability took a little bit of a hit, but it wasn't like a uh, Trump did. He, he didn't gain at all. It was basically just Biden lost a couple points in favorability. Yeah, Trump went up in the in the consult poll. I mean, Biden fell by by two points or so, yeah. two or three, and Trump went up like around one point. So, it, uh, mm -hmm. but the sample size for that morning consult poll was fairly high, which makes the margin of error lower. Uh, and yeah. and margin morning consult and YouGov are both B-rated pollsters, uh, and they both had Biden up by around six points, which does mean the race. And I I believe the race is mm -hmm. narrower to an extent than it was last month. Uh, but mm -hmm. I still believe Biden's the favorite. If you look at the polling, I mean, even 538's model, uh, it definitely is not where it was last month. It's only at 68, 69% chance of victory now. Uh, that's not Biden as a commanding, uh, unquestioned favorite, but Biden still is a pretty firm favorite. Like at this point, mm -hmm. uh, it'll be interesting because we have had some polls from mediocre pollsters that showed Biden up uh, by more or that showed Biden up in the case of uh, at. Trafalgar poll down or Biden down in that Trafalgar poll. But I mean, those were the last two really high quality polls. I mean, people don't really like Emerson's crosstabs, but they do still get an A rating on 538 and they show Biden up by only three, which yeah. was uh, the narrowest margin there. But even if yeah, you I, account for the I know people like to call them Memerson, but they do have some credibility in the field. I mean, it's not easy to get an I mean, A. Technically, from, they're rated more as. Technically, they have a higher rating than Morning Consult and YouGov. I mean, they're they, yeah. they're the only A-rated pollster, uh, and and they only had Biden up by three points. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, for me, what I want, I also want to see more state polling. Obviously, Trafalgar put out a poll of Missouri today, which only had Donald Trump up by eleven. 
um, which is concerning. Obviously, we have the state at likely Republican because there have been other polls like this um, that have shown some closer races. But on the other hand, they put polls out in other states that have shown uh, relatively closer races. I know uh, public policy polling did a poll last week that looked at Alaska that didn't include presidential cross tabs, which kind of made me a little bit angry because I wanted to see what the, the presidential polling was there, especially given they have a history of polling Alaska. Um, so I really want to see how some of these state ones go, because obviously if he's starting to pull, pull closer in states like Minnesota, where his polling has improved recently, um, other states like New, I mean, New Hampshire, Nevada would be great to have polls because there's not really been any high quality polls of those states and they're pretty important swing states. Um, they're only, you know, four, six electoral votes, but they're still pretty valuable overall. Um, so really what... Yeah, I mean, there was, the, uh, yeah, there was the uh, David Bender research poll that had Biden up by 18 in Minnesota, which was obviously ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and then you had uh, PPP, which has a slight Democratic bias, but generally a good record that had Biden up 10. You had Emerson, and generally that's considered a lean towards the Republicans, at least recently. And that only had Biden up by two. So what I like to do in an instance like this is kind of take all the polls together and merge them average them out and then you kind of get a biden plus mm -hmm. four biden plus five in minnesota which is which is competitive still yeah and, especially and given the I mean, there was also a trafalgar poll uh trafalgar poll had them tied there but uh that also mm -hmm. had jorgens getting four percent which would be quite a lot and obviously trafalgar has a problem with their polling or they apparently did this in 2016 but they had this weird um they they weigh races by social desirability which basically means Trump is a less desirable candidate, so they give him free points. Um, obviously, some people have taken issue with that because that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense as methodology goes, but uh, apparently they did this in 2016 as well. At least that's what they're saying. It probably didn't work in 2018, given their polling was substantially off in, a, in that election. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a reason Trafalgar specifically has kind of had a, had a, had a bad reputation among some users on election Twitter, to put it mildly. Yeah, and when we look at those polls uh, so far, I mean, Minnesota is technically, if you look at the 538 model, which basically is an amalgamation of all the polls, sorry, Minnesota is technically closer than Michigan at this point. It's going to be really, really interesting to see if Minnesota, this election, votes to the right of Michigan. Mm -hmm. That'd be pretty wild. And what I mean, do you think I'm about the chances of that? Uh, in your opinion. I don't, yeah, I don't think it's entirely impossible that Trump wins Minnesota while losing Arizona, at least if you look at the current polling. If, if the race were to narrow, um, there are some just unique reasons in yeah, general why Minnesota is a is a viable target. Actually, it's very similar to Arizona in that it's a state where Democrats have – Republicans in Minnesota have been stuck at 45 percent for a while, and Democrats in Arizona have been stuck at 45% for a while. But but in both of those states, 2016 kind of showed a bit of a breakthrough where obviously Minnesota was very close. It was it voted a little bit to the right of the nation if you look at the popular vote. And Arizona, you know, Trump only won, what, 48% of the vote there? Um, it's really not yeah, impossible I mean, you see something like that. Even a swing state like Wisconsin, uh, mm -hmm. critical to Trump's victory, a state that, Tr that Clinton did not campaign in at all after the convention, after the primaries in 2016, mm -hmm. a state where Biden does have a lead right now. Uh, but even then, if the race tightens, you've had people who have been polled on election Twitter and said that they view Arizona as more winnable for the Biden campaign, um, more winnable for the Biden campaign than a state like Wisconsin is. 
Mm-hmm. Which I would say that's a little bit. Re- I don't want to say it's ridiculous, but I think Wisconsin is clearly uh, the marquee swing state of. American no, no, no. Politics. I'm not saying yeah. I personally agree with it, and the polling wouldn't back that up. But that is what I've heard some people say, and I think yeah. it. I think it could be in 2024 more of a true analogy as the Rust Belt continues to trend away from the Democrats. And the so like, I think it's yeah. I think it's entirely possible that Minnesota votes to the right of not only Michigan but also Pennsylvania. Um, mainly because those states have far more suburbs that can flip, whereas Minnesota has so much red that's not even come close to reaching its full potential. Um, and it's mainly relying on flipping some suburban areas, which already lean Democratic to begin with. I mean, there's really not a whole lot more you can get out of Hennepin County or Ramsey, um, whereas there's a lot more you can get out of the wide open rural areas that have still been hesitant to switch parties. Um, again, this is all hypothetical, um, right now, as the race goes, I wouldn't expect Trump to win Mich- uh, Minnesota. I wouldn't actually expect him to win any of the states we haven't leaned Democratic. And I would expect him to lose some of the states we haven't tossed up. He might, he could win the presidential election at the moment. I believe we have it where uh, if Biden just wins the states that are safe, likely, and leans, he has the election um, very narrowly. Um, so he wouldn't theoretically need any of the toss up states. That could change mm-hmm. in the future if the polls narrow. Um, obviously, states are going to be pretty important to look at. Um, the other one I want to see is I want to see North Carolina. I think North Carolina suffered from a lot of polling, but not all of it's been great. Um, I think I really want to see some, some more voting, um, or some more polls, polls in that state. Also in Georgia, I know there was a poll from public policy, uh, that put Biden up by one, obviously they're a democratic pollster. Um, so that does imply some bias there, but Texas as well, basically the, 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 we've kind of had a, had a glout of polling. There was a, a uh, there was an ECU poll in North Carolina that mm-hmm. had it tied, and then there was a morning console yeah. poll on Biden of three. So basically, yeah. morning console. There's a Civitas poll. Yeah, there's a Civitas poll. Public policy is polled, obviously. Um, but I think I don't know. There, there's been a lot of states where you could say, "I wish that we had more polling out of them." Um, this cycle, and I really hope people start paying more attention to this now because really the campaign is underfoot now. I mean, obviously. Uh, we, we're kind of unusual among countries. I, I was listening to a, a YouTuber who mentioned that um, Americans are considered to have really long presidential election cycles. But if you count it from the convention, which is basically what every other country on earth does, basically if you count it to where the candidates are nominated, it's a similar amount of time to any other country on earth has. So we're in full, we're in full campaign swing. We know what the issues are going to be. We know what the topics are going to be. We know who the, what the focuses are going to be coming out of the conventions. So do some more polling on this in all, all the swing states and kind of get, a, get us an idea of if there's been any boost at all. I assume people out there doing that. Um, but at the moment, I've just not been impressed with the, with the post-convention polling, to put it lightly. Mm-hmm. And another thing to do with polls that I want to talk about is polls uh, also conducted by Emerson, which is generally a reliable pollster. Uh, if you look at their rating, I wouldn't say reliable in their 2018 polls because most of those were not very sure. good. <laughs> uh, but uh, in terms of just getting an A minus rating, sure. So it's interesting to look at. Uh, they polled November voting plan and candidate support over the last two days, um, whether the uh, people would be voting for Trump or Biden based off of how they're voting. Um, and you had vote in person early, where Trump leads 50 to 48. Vote in person on election day, Trump leads 57 to 37. But then vote by mail, heavily lopsided, Biden leads 67 to 28. Mm-hmm. And And uh, what's your opinion on that? Uh, I think states are going to have to really take the vote by mail seriously. I know in Pennsylvania, I believe, is that Governor Tom Wolf 
has said they're going to start counting ballots ahead of election day so that they can yeah, get they're the results. supposed to have all their ballots counted bef- 21 days before election day. Mm-hmm. This is something I know – yeah, I know Joe Szymanski was a big fan of this move. I think Republicans are going to be happy with it because j- just just for the look of things, it's, it's much better to have all those votes counted, have the election day come in, and then know who won rather than have those votes trickle in over a week and have the appearance Which of, is what most of the states are going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, granted, some of them had no problems. Texas didn't have a whole lot of problems with their... No, Texas doesn't. And Florida yeah. was pretty good about it as well. Yeah, Florida's always pretty good. Aside from... Florida gets a bad rep, but really that's Palm Beach and Broward just screwing the pooch. Uh, those two and counties... That's basically what happened in the 2000 presidential race and the 2018 yeah. Senate race. So. Yeah. Like, literally, the rest of Florida is awesome. Uh, one of our contributors, Jenna Coulter, uh, I believe if she doesn't work there as a poll... I mean, as a poll worker, she does... Or she had in the past... They do a good job. They're not incompetent. It's just Broward and Palm Beach in particular have incompetent teams at points. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it is interesting, as I always say on this show, to look at the nuances you'll see within a state, not just within the country as a whole, but within a state, how you'll see nuances and how they count ballots effectively. Yeah. And Florida is a great example of that. I mean, if you look at the 2000 presidential race, Palm Beach County, if you look at the 2018 uh, Senate race, Broward County, <laughs> Brenda Snipes, <laughs> very close race where incumbent Democrat Bill Nelson ended up losing in a fluke race in a blue wave by just 0.1%, 0.1. Really, really narrow margin well, to Rick again, Scott, who, yeah. who, who Rick Scott continues to win races by ever smaller margins each time, yeah. narrower and narrower. This is why I mean, I, we've, yeah. we've got to assume in 2024 he'll be reelected by one vote. This is why I created the infamous Rick Scott Thanos meme because he is inevitable. He's going to win by like five votes, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Um, it just it's Pretty just much. Too- I mean, he's the perfect personification of Florida's uh, small but decisive Republican lean in recent years. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, overall, like that's gonna be a big one. I really want to see how some of the states like Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Minnesota, um, Ohio, and Iowa count their votes. Um, obviously those states may have substantial amounts of mail-in votes and states like Michigan and Ohio in particular are very large states. Um, they're within the top 10, if I recall right, of state, you know, state population nationally. Uh, mm-hmm. I am really skeptical about California and New York. I think California in particular is going to be worse than ever. Um, California honestly, could be still counting into like December at this rate. If you look at how slow they were. Number, yeah. Which they stretch again. There are entire countries with larger populations than California that count their votes in the night. Um, it's really that's just that's just their laws that uniquely make them uh, problematic in that regard. I would say, but thankfully, states like California and New York are not going to be deciding the election. So hopefully, the rest of the ones follow that either follow that Pennsylvania path and have them counted ahead of time, or they just follow you know Texas and Florida and don't have that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're about to get into our next segment with a debate here in one minute. So uh, it won't really be a debate, uh, but Eric, you're welcome to stay on for this if you want to provide some extra commentary as well, because I know sure. all three of us, I think, agree on this point. Yeah. Uh, but we're basically going to be debating, can Trump effectively use his attacks against Biden? And Biden has denounced on Twitter repeatedly and in person the violence going on in the cities right now, but but how effective Will it be as a campaign attack for Donald Trump to effectively connect uh, the violence that's going on in places like Kenosha, Wisconsin, and other cities we've seen this year to Biden's campaign? And what impact will that have on Biden's ability to win the election? And by extension, what impact will that have on uh, suburbs that have otherwise been trending towards the Democrats, but now potentially 
uh, given these issues going on, could Trump effectively scare suburban voters away from Democrats? And uh, even if it's not enough this time, could it really play an impact in the 2022 midterms if it's already a good environment for Republicans? So we're going to be welcoming uh, Jared Stone on. Welcome, Jared. It's Hi, be guys. Welcome. There would have been a traditional debate time this week, but unfortunately it didn't work out. So I'm just going to have Jared uh, go through his argument, essentially. I know he's arguing that uh, it will damage Biden and ballot Democrats. But if you want to just go through your argument, Jared, real quick. Yeah. And and first, let me say, um, for the sake of keeping this conversation interesting, hopefully I can bring up some counterpoints that I, I think mm -hmm. do have some to have some weight to them, even if I don't agree with them. Um, but my opinion is that what we're seeing is, is that the backlash to these riots, at least the popular perception of what these riots bring to our to the forefront of our society, is going to help Trump in his narrative and in his argument to help him basically win back the White House. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that he is favored by any means. If any polling recently is an indication of what the current state is, Joe Biden has a, a very strong advantage, pretty much Obama does in eight levels. Now, it's it's kind of incomparable to say that his victory is going to be like Obama's in 2008 because those coalitions have changed. And I think this really plays into the topic really well. It's a very salient point because I think what Trump is trying to capitalize on is this sort of law and order uh, type of sentiment that has traditionally been seen throughout a lot of predominantly Caucasian suburbs in major cities. These include cities like New York, Los Angeles, Houston, Chicago. Uh, and so when when our country has seen points uh, where people have engaged in looting and rioting uh, and things have really gone to the brink of destruction, uh, an example is 1968, uh, where you had two different factions of the Democratic Party, namely sort of the Hubert Humphrey, uh, more establishment Johnsonian type which advocated for a strong military presence in Vietnam, even still. Uh, and then sort of the, the, the hippie revolutionary counterculture, which advised against it, you saw these clashes and you saw a lot of violence break out in cities. You know, the assassination of, of prominent political leaders like Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Uh, but contextually speaking, the result from that was a win for Republicans. They were able to uh, quite successfully uh, round up voters in the suburbs who were quite uncomfortable with some of the the new sentiments that were being felt across the country. And so the law and order type uh, of suburban sentiment was something that uh, was really encapsulated by that moment in history. But I don't think that that's something that is true today, just because we're seeing that a lot of the suburbs that have traditionally adhered to this sentiment are now much more diverse uh, and also much more socially liberal, meaning that they may not resonate with this type of language as much as people 50 years ago would have who have been living in those areas. Uh, with that said, I was trying to say that uh, as sort of a as, as sort of a point there, but you are seeing a a considerable shift in public opinion away from supporting these riots, which are sort of brought about by a greater uh, international or a greater national reckoning on race with the Black Lives Matter movement. But you are seeing some backlash against it just because uh, some of these violent ramifications have started to hit home more uh, for people, especially people in places like Kenosha and Wisconsin. And previously in places like Portland, Oregon, uh, and Seattle, Washington. And you see a few prevailing political factors here. Uh, basically, these cities are prominently democratic. They are run by Democrats on almost every echelon of government. Uh, they are also governed by a Democratic mayor. Uh, the states of Oregon, Washington, and Wisconsin all have Democratic, uh, or excuse me, Democratic governors, rather. 
Uh, and so almost all tiers of government there are controlled by Democrats. And so that is uh, juxtaposed with the national situation where Donald Trump is trying to get the National Guard to come into these areas. And you're seeing some clashes between the Democratic administration, the people who oversee these places, versus the Republican president. I think that people are starting to get sick uh, in some of these areas of the rioting and of the destruction that has that has been incurred as a result of this this national reckoning on race. And I think that people are starting to become therefore more uh, more in favor of of the presidential tone, which has been much more again law and order, trying to restore order uh, and 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 basic safety in these places via things like the National Guard. And it's, in my opinion, it's probably the perfect thing for Trump to run on when he really doesn't have very much else to run on this election because uh, the stock market is very, very good right now. And that is a good representation of pent up business energy that's just waiting to bust out and revive the economy. Uh, but other economic indicators largely aren't very good. GDP is not very good. Unemployment has been stagnating. Uh, and, you know, general economic outlook by the poorer half of the country has, has also not been very good in terms of jobs. More people have filed for unemployment. So it's a mixed bag. Trump's definitely not running on the economy uh, in the same way he did in 2016. Um, and uh, he, he, he disagrees with his Democratic opponents on the virus because they're arguing that he's botched his response to the virus. Trump's arguing that the virus is essentially the reason why the economy uh, is not doing right, well right now. And essentially... That is a fair point. I mean, the economy would, I'm almost certain, be doing fairly well right now if it weren't for the virus. I mean, people were predicting a recession uh, just because you naturally have recessions every eight to 10 years, uh, but not to this scale. Uh, the virus is certainly an extraordinary circumstance. So uh, just to revert back, that pretty much leaves Trump running for re-election genuinely with more things that he could be attacked on rather than to attack his opponent on with the riots as a perfect way to attack Biden. And Republican strategists have clearly realized this because they try to incorporate more people of minority origin into their RNC, first of all. Um, and that was a genuine attempt, in my opinion, to make the Republican Party at least appear more diverse on that level. Uh, for better or for worse, they're definitely going to have an easier chance at winning over some Hispanic voters and Cuban voters than they are African-American voters, but uh, they attempted it. And I think that's their strategy long-term, uh, is even if there's still kind of this Trump brand uh, that's even if there's kind of this Trump brand that's mixing in with the Republican Party, and uh, there's a good chance that that Trump populism will always at least have a faction, even if it's not the dominating faction within the Republican Party. But I think the convention showed a chance where the Republicans were trying to make themselves more diverse because they know that uh, as some of these states, particularly along the Sun Belt, become more diverse, that, that would be necessary for a winning coalition. Uh, and I know, just real quick before I get back to my final point, I know that uh, Peter, when he was on Elections Weekly last Thursday, even said that he expects there to be at least a woman or someone of minority origin like Tim Scott to be on the Republican ticket in 2024 mm -hmm. in some capacity, which will be very, very interesting. I know a lot of Democrats disagree with that, uh, but I think Republicans are going to realize that they have to become a more diverse party to win presidential elections long term. Uh, but back to my point, Trump's in a hostile environment right now as an incumbent. He's still not a favorite, even though the polls have been slightly narrower than they were last month. Uh, and if you look at this, it's almost a perfect way to attack uh, a Democratic candidate. Because if you look at President Trump at the place he's sitting right now, he can just blame Democratic governors and mayors. And this is not even uh, what I'm saying. I mean, it's just a fact. He can blame Democratic governors and mayors in some of these cities 
he can use the convention, he can use Fox News and other conservative outlets to spread images of these riots and what's going on. And he can effectively say that it's not his fault that they aren't being stopped, but that uh, since the uh, people like Oregon Governor Kate Brown just straight out don't want the National Guard to suppress the, the, the rioting, he can just use that to rally up support around him and blame the Democrats. Uh, and thus, even though Joe Biden has said about uh, has said on Twitter quite a few times today that he doesn't support the riots, he can implicitly connect Joe Biden to the riots, which is effectively the one of the few things President Trump has going for him in an otherwise fairly grim year for him for re-election. Uh, and Eric, I don't know if there's anything you want to say about it, but but it really is, in my opinion, one of the best things that Trump can run on win back suburbs. I, even if we, we don't know if it's going to be successful or not, but if I were a Republican strategist, that's probably what I would tell Trump to run on at this point, because it's one of the few things that would potentially benefit the GOP. Yeah. So realistically, I think he actually has a couple of advantages here. First off is that these riots are primarily happening in swing states. They're happening in Minnesota and in Mich or in Wisconsin, which is obviously those are two major swing states. Uh, Kenosha County actually voted for uh, the county that said, if I believe Racine County voted for Donald Trump in, in 2016, the first time it had voted for a Republican in decades. Um, so obviously there's a little bit of pent up stuff there. Another thing is that they actually have ammo to go on. Kamala Harris during the initial uh, unrest in, in, um, you know, in, in Minnesota was promoting the bail fund for, uh, for rioters, which is ultimately what it was, is that resulted in rioters going out on the streets. If you're ever going to have a promotion for kind of the, uh, kind of the Willie Horton sort of ad, that's the way you do that, is you, is you find someone who was the victim yeah, I mean, from one of those people who were released. Um, yeah. There's genuinely stuff that can... Another one specifically is that um, obviously states like... Uh, I think Minnesota is one where he could especially benefit from this because obviously the suburban decline there has been a big deal. If you could combine increasing Republican strength in the rural areas of Minnesota with a, with at least a pushback, a little bit of, of a pushback on in the suburban front, that's all of a sudden takes a state that probably would vote for Biden and brings it much more closer to the forefront, um, specifically. If Trump was managed to revive mm -hmm. Lee Atwater, he would actually potentially win the election. I mean, as you know, <laughs> Lee, for better or for worse, whether you disagree with Lee Atwater's tactics of race baiting and pointing out crime and why it was bad and associated with Democrats, that's not my words. Those are his words. But it worked effectively to along with other factors, mm -hmm. to turn around what was a Dukakis lead mm -hmm. in the polls for almost the entire uh, portion, except for the late half of the 1988 campaign, into a Bush re-election win by a stable margin in the popular vote and a landslide margin in the electoral vote. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I'm saying, I think this, I think we all agree that if things continue as they are, and Trump uses this as his one method, uh, that Biden is still the favorite, but that uh, it's definitely hurting Biden more than it's... Um, necessarily helping Trump. And that's probably why we've seen Biden uh, get his support chipped away in the polls more than we've seen Trump rise in the polls. But if someone's supports being chipped away, it could lead to a narrower Biden victory than we would have expected last month. I mean, is that something you guys think is a possibility in your opinion? Sure. What about you, Jared? Absolutely. I think that the state of Minnesota, even though it did vote for Democrats by overwhelming margins, uh, in 2018, notably, Amy Klobuchar was able to win all the all of the congressional districts there, uh, mm -hmm. all them narrowly. But this could definitely uh, be a tactic that could turn an otherwise insurmountable lead for Biden into a barn burner of a race. And so, it's something to not be taken for granted. And I think that one more point I have on this is that um, I think this is a perfect tactic for Trump, uh, mainly because 
it doesn't really rest on ideology. If Trump is putting all the resources out there and they're simply being refused uh, by the Democrats who oversee mm-hmm. these states, whether on, on, the, on the state or on the local level, then he doesn't need to rest on any sort of ideology or to resort to it. All he, all he has to do is to acknowledge the fact that he is presenting those resources to help out the situation. And so for someone who is not as driven by ideology as many other Republicans have been historically, I think this really fits sort of the, the, the Trump character quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, if, and, there, if, and uh, if Trump brings this to the presidential debates, and there are going to be three of them, and there, Biden and Trump have already agreed to them, and I'm looking forward to them. So I can guarantee you there are going to be questions about this in the debate. And I feel like Trump, there's going to be a large national audience because the conservatives are arguing that Biden's not fit to be president. So you're going to have a lot of people tuning into the debate to see whether uh, Biden actually debates Trump well or whether he collapses against Trump. And uh he debated, he debated fine in the Democratic primaries, and there really isn't any evidence that his mental acuity is, is going down to the point where he he can't serve as president. But uh, when we're looking at this on the baseline level, I'm very interested to see how much Trump stresses this in the debates. And given Trump's style of really not caring about formality, how much Trump simply interrupts Biden or interjects and brings up everything that's going on right now with the anti-police sentiment and uh biden will be arguing that he's not pushing against police but just pushing for racial justice uh but all trump has to do is really just play the uh card of riots and at least appeal to some voters Mm -hmm. and it's worth noting it's one thing when kate brown or ted wheeler or the gut or jay Inslee turned down federal aid those states aren't remotely competitive and there are large portions of those areas that would be in favor of refusing that it's another thing when Tony Evers, who only narrowly won election in 2018 in a very competitive swing state, um, refuses aid uh, in a situation that's clearly out of hand. They, I mean, th- I think some of this to a degree is even worse than what went well, on in well, Minneapolis. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, the amount Sorry. of destruction that goes on, that went on, obviously Minneapolis got hit hard. Some of the photographs coming out of, out of Kenosha are just are horrifying. Um, a, a, like looks almost like a war zone. I mean, this is just perfect imagery. I mean, on a blunt level to use, but also if you're going to refuse the National Guard coming in to stop that, uh, that's a pretty effective campaign ad, in my opinion. Regardless of if there's merit to that or and not, it's, 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 it's very, very bad news for for Tony Evers, especially mm-hmm. if he's running for re-election in a Biden midterm. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you look at the traditional history of midterms, usually the party opposite of the president or the challenger party does better mm-hmm. in midterms. Typically the House flips and they make gains in the Senate. That's just average. Not always, but it's highly unlikely unless there's a national tragedy or emergency or um, in the case of Bill Clinton's impeachment, something that makes a popular president seem like a martyr, uh, that the president's party will do well in the midterms. And with these images coming out right now, I highly doubt voters are going to forget this kind of stuff uh, two years from now when Governor Evers is up for re-election. And I think he's going to have a very tough race for re-election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and obviously, even to a degree, Oregon, uh, they, they're, I mean, I, I don't want to sleep too much on them. Uh, a Democrat's not won more than like 53% of the vote in Oregon in a couple of decades. Uh, their elections have been relatively close for the last decade. So even there, um, that's one where you wouldn't want to sleep on necessarily if there's a credible. A no, credible I mean, nominee. I mean, if you, if you, if you look at it, Brown only won by seven points in a blue mm-hmm. wave. If there's yeah. a red wave and, uh, you know, if the suburbs in a red wave go back to voting Republican, which is possible. I mean, I mean, if we look at the history of midterms, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Just like Democrats had 
surprising wins in states like Kansas, theoretically a Republican could win in Oregon if the margins are as close as they are, as they were back in 2018. And again, Brown won by seven points, but Oregon's another example of those states that are definitely at least recently more competitive on the state level than they are on the federal mm -hmm. level. Well, I mean, Oregon and Washington yeah. still both have at least one Republican row officer, like Kim Wyman is the Secretary of State in Washington. Mm -hmm. Well, if you combine this, if you combine suburban strength, like the recipe to win either of those states is to combine suburban strength with strength in the timber areas, in in the north, mm -hmm. uh, specifically in the northwest of of Oregon. Um, that's a way to win. If you, I think I may be I may be off base here, but uh, the 2012 gubernatorial election in Washington, for example, was fairly close. It was within five percentage points. If you take the margins that Trump pulled in some of those timber counties in the Pacific Northwest areas, uh, all of a sudden the Republican probably wins that race, or at least it's a lot closer. Yeah, um, it was only it was only 51 uh, to 49 in that race. Yeah. I mean, back in 2004, when Dana Rossi ran against uh, uh, Christine Gugois, that race was very, very close. Really, that yeah. is one of the most controversial races ever. <laughs> Republicans will argue that Rossi had the election stolen from him, but it was it was took months to certify. Even, it was even longer than yeah. Minnesota Senate two thousand eight. That was yeah. one of the longest elections to certify. Literally, I think won by like point zero zero five percent or something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But seriously, guys, thank you for coming on for the debate. I know we've angered some people in the comments section, uh, <laughs> but the whole point of this is to be kind of like debate time. And even though all three of us seem to agree, uh, oh, well, I mean, it, it was a good point and we had some good discussion. Uh, so thank you again for coming on and make sure you watch our Massachusetts election coverage mm -hmm. tomorrow. We're going to be covering a ton of highly anticipated races starting at 8 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. So come check us out on Elections Daily. Like, subscribe and thank you for watching the report. Uh, as always, we appreciate you watching uh, and have a good night.